Welcome to episode 293 with my guest, Judy Gold. Today's episode is sponsored by Young Health. Did you know that research suggests that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? Well, the people at Young Health do, and that's why they've developed Probimmune, a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Probimmune is easy to use, easy to travel with, and does not require refrigeration. Right now, our listeners get 50% off their first order of Probimmune. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probimmune for just $17.48 plus shipping and handling. So go to www.probimmune.com, that's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout to get 50% off today. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's uh, not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. Uh, It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle. You can follow me at. Go check out the website. There's all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, Join the forum. Fill out an anonymous survey. uh, Donate to the show. Buy a coffee mug, a t-shirt. See what events are coming up, etc., etc. Speaking of that, uh, LA Podfest is coming up um, September 23rd through 25 and i'm doing a live recording of the podcast that sunday night the 25th um you can come check it out live or you can uh stream it or you can watch an archive of it uh for more information go to lapodfest.com and um if you use the offer code happy uh you'll get five dollars off uh the ticket price um let's get to some let's get to some uh surveys this is a struggle, and actually all of these are struggle in a sentence surveys. Um, and this was filled out by Jane, who describes her anxiety. Every social interaction is like being called on in class and not knowing the answer. Thank you for that. Uh, Pleasure Delay writes about his depression. Like the little men in Gulliver's Travels are using ropes in a complex pulley system to restrain my every thought feeling and all movement. I surrender and lay motionless in bed, let them claim victory and wait for them to get bored with me. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, a thousand little baby birds chirping in my heart for the thing I know I hate. Oh, that is fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, Lana J writes about her depression. My depression feels the way the seasons change, but it's just one season, winter, all the time. God, do I relate to that one? Uh, Nacho Mendoza writes about her bulimia. Everything feels momentarily perfect and wonderful, and like the world is organized at perfect right angles. Uh, Rose Teacup writes about uh, her love addiction. Why don't you just love me in the way I want you to love me? About her sex addiction. Why don't you just use me in the way I want you to use me? And about her codependency, why don't you just tell me everything you're doing so I can plan everything I'm doing around it? And then uh, that weird girl, Maddie, God, she's so sad. What she's, What's she doing here um, writes about her anxiety. I respond to texts and emails as soon as I get them. If you type for one more moment, I could just die from the anticipation. 
uh, about her love addiction. I can have sex with three different people in one day and still miss you. Uh, about her codependency. Honestly, if my friends knew they should be worried about me, I'd feel worse for worrying them. And the snapshot from her life, she writes, When I was a kid, I watched Nightmare on, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and, of course, was scared shitless of Freddy Krueger. To comfort myself at night, I'd remind myself, Why would Freddy come to you? You're not special. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Judy Gold, who is a stand-up comedian. She's uh, an actor. Um, I've always enjoyed your stand-up. It's uh, you're one of those comedians who I can just see thirty seconds of, and I feel like I know, I know you, I know your life, I know what bugs you. Um, I don't know. It, I, I'm glad to to have you on the podcast. You're you're uh, you're a lesbian. What? You're Jewish. What? You're from New York. Is there no? I'm from a, New Jersey. From New Jersey. But I I've spent yes. more time in New York than and very you're, close to New York. You did your comedy in New York. Yeah. Is there anything else ISIS hates about you? Oh, um, well, I I was artificially inseminated, so I have children. Uh, and without, yeah, you, I bought sperm. You might want to go into hiding. You are six foot three. I shrunk. I'm like six two okay. now because I had a total knee replacement. And when you were in eighth grade, you were how tall? Six feet. Let's start there. Uh. Share share the um share the story about music so i was always really into music but when in seventh grade i tried out for the best because everyone's like oh you got to play basketball you got to play basketball you're so tall and i like to play that's the thing about me if i i like to go out and play and i remember as a kid like if i would run around all day and ride my bike until until i was completely exhausted that was like the best day then i became an obsessive exerciser but um obviously <laughs> i got over that <laughs> oh it's your podcast no one can see me anyway so eighth grade so seventh grade i tried it for the basketball team wayne carrick who's the you know head of the girls basketball team tells me i'm too tall for the team and it wouldn't be fair to the other players so i don't make the team i later find out 
that, you know, I grew up in a town there were a lot of anti-Semites. So all the Jews and Italians lived on one side of town and all like the Polish and German people lived on another side. Okay. So eighth grade. No, no, this is. That was the story I told was senior in high school. Oh, okay. Was I was gonna I was a junior in high school. Okay. But I, I can tell you an eighth grade story, so you must be psychic. So I you know, I would get invited to bar mitzvahs, but I was and bat mitzvahs, but I wasn't popular. My mother always wanted me to be in with the Jewish crowd, but she called them the clique. So my parents, my father had served in World War Two and my mother was born in nineteen twenty two and the, everyone to them is anti Semitic. Everyone which is true. Mm-hmm. Most people are. Um, and there was a group of girls who were the Jewish girls, and I could not be in their group. I was really tall. My parents were much older. Um, you know, I was quirky and funny and crazy, and uh, I just wasn't a part of their group. My mother would always pressure me. You know, I'd bring friends home from the other side of town. Uh, I don't understand why you can't hang. You know, so... I remember eighth grade graduation from. Uh, and were your parents raised here? My mother grew up in Manhattan. Okay. And my father grew up in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Okay. Um, and I remember eighth grade. Uh, they had a contest who could play the accompany the eighth grade graduation on the piano. The the song, which was We May Never Pass This Way Again by Seals and Crofts. And so I auditioned and I got, so I got to be the person accompanying the, you know, the whole graduating class. Now we graduated in size order. I was the last one to graduate. And I played, I remember the one time we had rehearsal and I played, I accompanied them. And I remember one of the cool kids in the clique was like, oh, Oh, I didn't know you. Oh, that was you playing. Oh, and I was like, please, you know. And I mean, I go to bar mitzvahs. I'm th- here's one. There was for a Jewish kid in the suburbs of New Jersey to get. You had to get invited to all. You wanted to get invited to all the bar mitzvahs, especially all if they were in your Hebrew school class. Like you always invited everyone in your Hebrew school class. So I remember one day I'm walking down the street. And it was the first bat mitzvah of our year. And she stops me. She's in the car with her mother. And now my bat mitzvah was in November. It's probably January or December. And she stops and she says, oh, Judith. Um, Everyone called me Judith. Are you planning on inviting me to your bat mitzvah? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, this is December. My bat mitzvah is in a year. She goes, oh, all right. So then I'll invite you to mine. And her mother's in the car. Then I was at a bat mitzvah and all the kids would sit together, but I always never, like no one wanted to sit with me and I was always on the end and everything. And this one of the biggest head of this jappy, nasty clique of girls comes in and starts pointing down the road at everyone and she goes like, "Um, did you get my invitation? 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 Skips over me. Did you get my invitation? Did you get, like, everyone on the row but me? Oh, my God. I mean, it was constant. Um, and then, Do you remember what you thought or felt? Humiliation. Humiliation. And just, like, why me? Why me? And then I was in the play. They had, we did Guys and Dolls. 
and I got to play, that was in seventh grade, and I got to play um, Sarah Arvide. We've uh, decided to close down the mission. I was the head of the mission. I could never get a, uh, an ingenue part because I was so tall. And then I also played in the orchestra. So I played clarinet. And um, I remember after the play was over, we'd go to every school, you know, and do it. And after the play was over, they would cut. Everyone in the play would cut for a day. I never cut school, ever. So I begged my mother. I was like, because all I wanted to do was be accepted. But, you know, I'm like, please, can I cut? Please, everyone's cutting. Everyone's calling, you know. And, you know, I nudged so much that, fine, Judith. So I cut school. And I got up that morning and I called the phone number. They're like, we're going to Lisa Mealy's house. And uh, so I called and this woman answered, hello. And I said, hi, is it's, is Lisa there? Wrong number. And then I called again. Hello? You have the wrong number. So I cut school. I think they all probably went to school and lied. Or they had the pool party and just gave me the wrong phone number on purpose. So eighth grade graduation, I lived five houses down from the school. And my mother would always pick, like, I I swear to God, I walked to school. It's five houses. They were, you know, maybe a half acre, acre, Mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, And I would walk to school. And anytime there was weather, anytime there was like some sort of, warning torrential rain who was the first i swear to god every time judith gold please report to the principal's <laughs> office and i'm like we li- i could see my house when we went out for lunch you could walk to my house so eighth grade graduation we graduate and i'm feeling good because i got to accompany you know and uh so we're all outside after graduation all the parents are standing there you know and I tell my parents, oh, you guys could go home. I'm going to go out because everyone was going to Friendly's. I said, yeah, I'm going to go to Friendly's with everyone so you guys can go home. And I remember I, was, I asked a couple people, oh, can I get a ride with you? Oh, no, sorry, our car's full. And I remember walking home from school by myself, like the whole parking lot had emptied out and I was just standing there by myself. Oh, my God. It was constant, like it was like that all the time. And then you throw in what seems like your mom's constant disappointment that you are not achieving this thing that you actually are trying really hard right. to do. And and part of me, but that was her thing. But my mother was definitely had depression, and and I was always trying to make her feel better. And I was also the identified patient in my family where no one spoke to one another. Like, they. What do you mean when you say the identified patient? So I mean that everyone would tell me how crazy I am because I was different. And meanwhile, they're the ones not acting normal. And my brother and sister, and my, they get really mad when I talk about this, but I don't think they'll. If you know my brother and sister, do not call them and tell them you listen to this. But. They used to do things like um, on Sunday morning, we'd wake up and we'd be at breakfast or something. And uh, they would sit there and be like, 
oh my god that was so fun and i'm like what shut up that oh my god didn't you have the best time i'm like what tell me what they're like judith it's none of your business so it turns out they said they were in the secret club and at night they would sneak out and go to these amusement parks they were empty except for they could use whatever they wanted and, to, and then they had just gotten back and I'm like, oh my God, what, what do I have to do to get in the club? And they're like, you have to um, be, a- <laughs> you have to be able to have the pillow over your head for three minutes without screaming. And I was like, okay. And they're like, you ready? I think it might've been a minute. And then every, if I made it, it would, they would be like, no, we meant, you know, tour. and they used to, put the pillow over my head but i would always i mean it was like being you know you're like head is i i now sleep with like three pillows i cannot i have like ptsd if i lay uh (laughs) if i lay flat i'm like you know i feel like they would put the pillow over your face and like suffocate you yeah but make sure i could breathe and did you get into the club by no i never got in the club because i would always scream so What do you find this interesting at all? I do, you know. But it was hard. The thing is that they were. Then my brother decided he didn't like me. He didn't talk to me at all. Like I didn't exist for many years, and I got hit by a car when I was sixteen. I was on my way to driver's ed, and I made a left turn. I might have smoked a little bit of pot right before, and this woman hit me, and then, uh. I ended up going to the hospital. They shaved my head. I had like, I looked like, you know, it, a caricature of someone who had been, I had a sling, I had a neck brace and my head was wrapped, right? Cause I had 15 stitches in my head and I'm sitting on the couch and it's over the summer and my brother and sister both had jobs. My brother walks in. He never talked to me, but he walks in. He sees me on the couch. He says, what happened? I said, I got in a car accident. He went upstairs and then my sister walked in, looked at me, and went upstairs. <laughs> and I've asked her, why wouldn't you? And she said, I knew I was going to find out. what, I, Like, not any, like. You must have uh, felt so invisible in, oh, it's, in, in your, I, on earth. You must have just, it's like but I But the thing was, that's interesting, is that I felt invisible, but I was so big that I couldn't hide. Well, it's it's you like know? the only part of you that was visible was the part of you that you wanted to be invisible. Right, exactly. So when I'm walking down the street and people are yelling, stopping in their cars to, you know, call me Sasquatch or whatever, you know, it was like that's all that's the attention I got. I only got this negative, you know, until I was in the band and the band was home for me. Like the band because there were other nerdy kids and i was funny and they appreciated it and then my senior year of high school which is what you asked me i can't believe mm-hmm. i tangented is that a word tangent it is now uh and all i wanted to be was the um drum major and i was really tall i was six three at this point six two and a half i don't know and I'm first chair clarinet, and the thing, the audition was that they bring in the principal, the superintendent, all these like, you know, because you're representing the mm. marching band, you know, and uh, you have to conduct the Star Spangled Banner. So they're all sitting in the back, all the bigwigs, and 
someone had gone on before me. And in music, if you watch a conductor, what they'll do is they'll lift the, their hands, the baton in their hands. Um, and that means bring your instruments to your mouth mm-hmm. or bring your bow to your, you know, string instrument, whatever. And they do a little sort of uh, half circle up. Mm-hmm. And as you're coming down, that's the downbeat. So it goes mm-hmm. <gasps> boom, 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 you know, like mm-hmm. it. All right. So I, I do the instruments up. I, I do the upbeat. And as I'm coming down, Bobby Kamenecki screams Sasquatch really loud. And I, and I had to conduct after being humiliated. I was the conductor and I didn't get it. How do you, what are the issues that you struggle with today? Depression? Or is that not so much anymore? I had a major clinical depression, major, major, in 2010. Uh, It's something, it's one of my greatest fears is that it will happen again. Because, you know, they don't know. Um, I'm not bipolar, but, you know, depression is a symptom of bipolar. So they think Mm. that maybe, but I took some genetic tests. I'm not likely to, but that is one of my biggest fears. I suffer from terrible anxiety. Um, how does how does your anxiety uh, manifest itself? It's changed over the years. Uh, when I was a kid, which is a good career move, yeah, for anxiety, yeah, very good. You don't want to become predictable, yeah. So the beginning, I was definitely OCD. I would have to, you know, take a shower the exact same way. I remember exactly how I had to take a shower. If I deviated from, like, if I washed my face before I washed my hair, then I was going to have a horrible day. Then I had this thing where when I went to bed, I had to open the door, close it, open it again, close it, and then open it halfway. I mean, it was just like all these these uh, rituals. So I was very into rituals. And I, for years, I mean, this just stopped, where I would pick my fingers till they were bleeding like I couldn't. A lot of uh, yeah, it's very common. Share that, yeah, yeah. So I don't know why. I mean, I have it a little bit, um, but it it was where I'd be on TV shows with band aids all over my finger, or trying to hide my finger, um, or I'd shake someone's hand and it would be so painful, but I couldn't mm. say anything, you know. So, um, I. Before I was on meds, oh, I smoked a lot of pot and cigarettes. Like, I would smoke cigarettes in high school, and then I started smoking pot. And all through college, I smoked and smoked and smoked and smoked. And I didn't realize I was medicating myself until after, when I got into my 20s, um, when I started my first set I did, I was like 19, 18, 19, um, I did a little stand up in college for a while, and then I, you know, I graduated, and then I started doing it again. And so, I was a pot smoker, and then I became obsessed with exercise to the point where, and the thing that made me exercise was how I was going to feel if I didn't exercise. So that was sort of my medication. And so you weren't doing it for body image; you were doing it for the endorphins. Definitely do. I wanted to because I always felt guilty because everyone in my family exercised. So, yeah, I did it. I think it became for the endorphins to the point where I remember once I had a college gig. I was doing a tour 
of the north of like Boston. I had something in Boston and then I was going to was I going to North New Hampshire or Vermont? I had to drive and I was going to this college gig and it there was a storm coming and it said on the radio that the storm was like an hour and a half behind me, but I would make if I left now it was never going to catch up. But I was like, no, I have to run five miles. I have to run five miles. I can't, I won't be able to function if I don't run five miles. And I missed the gig. Because you had to run. Because I had to run five miles. Ended up at my cousin's house in New Hampshire for three days. Yeah, that doesn't sound healthy. No, yeah. Yeah, that was mental. I ran the marathon. Uh, I now have one knee replacement and I need the other one replaced. I mean, my brother was an exercise the whole, I, you know, I wanted to be thin and and everyone was kind of thin in my family my brother used to tell me i was fat and i've always thought i was fat and i look back at pictures and i'm like what the fuck i wish i had that body now so many people share that and yeah obviously 90 percent of them are women that uh who seem to get body right shamed or but analyzed right but just and first of all, my body is, you know, this, uh, I'm trapped in it because it's so big, but yet I love it. Like, yet there was something about, like, I had this one thing in me that was like, fuck you, I'm going to make it. And you you know, it was always, I always had this bit, like a little bit of, I'm going to go out there and, and they're not going to get, you know, and my mother was like, you'll say they're jealous you know she would say all this shit that i was like they're not jealous but now it's kind of funny when because the last day i ever spent with my mother she died last june um 2015 and we spent the day together and i remember saying that a couple of those people who i had mentioned about the not inviting me to their bat mitzvah and you know mm-hmm. the one who was like did you get my invitation yeah had written me on facebook trying to friend me and I telling my mother and my mother said, you live long enough. And that was like one of the last conversations we had. Yeah. What, what was your uh, relationship with your dad? Like, uh, in in childhood, what I feel like I got a picture of of of, my mother, of your mom. Um, Although actually, you know what I'd like to, to hear you talk about before we go to your dad is, you know, we see the kind of micromanaging mom. What were the? What are some beautiful moments that you that well, you had I, with I your should, mom? Some sh- things about her that that you loved. Well, my mother was uh, the was my act for so long. Um, she was really funny. Uh, she she was your act, and that you talked about her a lot, or you were time. just being her. Oh, I would do her, but yeah. I talked about she was a major part of my act. At and when I so I work in Provincetown a lot in the summers, and I used to, at the end of my set, call her on speakerphone when we had cell phones, and we would have, I would say, I know you think I'm making all this up. We're going to call her, and it was like one of the things that kept her alive. I think, but. Oh, from on stage, you yeah, would call her. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. And, you know, I would do stand-up. What they think of me, every time I went to the therapist, uh, I guess it's all my fault. <laughs> um, but the things I loved about her, you know, her brother was 
killed when she was she was 17 mm-hmm. and he was going to be 15 and he they lived on 94th Street between Broadway and West End he was at he was playing ball in fr- on 89th Street between West End and Riverside with his friends doorman came out said you guys can't play ball here he had his jacket on a hood of a car. Doorman takes the jacket, goes in the lobby, and starts like playing keep away with the superintendent's granddaughter in the lobby. And he reaches for his jacket, and the doorman pushes him, and he fell back and hit his head on the marble floor and died. What? So she comes walking home from school, sees her uncle standing on the corner, and she's wondering, why is my uncle at on the corner? And uh, he says... She was walking one of her. She had bumped into one of her cousins and said, oh, come over. And the uncle said, why don't you go home? Brings my mother upstairs. They tell her and they were very they were like best friends. And they basically closed the door to his room and never talked about it. They moved out of that apartment to a two bedroom or one less bedroom in the same building. And then they moved to 101st and West End. So. Her whole life, and until I found this out, if my father was 10 minutes late, she'd be on the porch, like, pacing. Um, She was so nervous. When we left the house, I had to give, like, the name of the person, the phone number, you know, know, address, everything. Um, And when I was five, we had just moved to this town in New Jersey, and I went to someone's house who actually ended up being the girl who didn't invite me to the bat mitzvah, but we were just five and I had just moved in and I went up the hill to her house and I couldn't read time. And, um, I was supposed to be home at six. We always had dinner at six and I, uh, was playing and I said to the mother, Oh, what time is it? And she was like eight. And I was like, Oh my God. So I, I mean, I literally is like a 10th of a mile away and I'm a kickstand and work. I'm walking my bike home. I look at the bottom of the hill and there's a police car in the driveway and you know my mother then attached an egg timer to my belt (laughs) and when the bell went off that was when i had to go home wow so i lit and and until i found out about her brother which was years and years later I didn't know why we were always living in fear of something horrible happen or why she was depressed or, you know, she'd overreact to things or she, we'd be in synagogue or, or something and she would start, you know, I'd say something and she'd cry. Like, I'd be like, oh, why aren't you wearing the other bracelet? You criticize me and cry. And, you know, it was probably she was thinking about something, you know, but I didn't know that as a kid. Um, and it wasn't until her late 80s. And I would I forced them to talk about it because I did I did a one person show and I and I talked a lot about that in the one person show. Um, and not a lot, but it was it's a defining moment because it explains my mother's hysteria. And uh, she says to me, "The thing was, Judith, that it happened in the morning, and they let me sit in school all day." And it took her till she was in like late 80s to say that to someone, that that's what bothered her, that that she that she was sitting in school like everything was okay, not and this horrible thing happened. So I, I forgive her for everything, 
But the one thing I love, which is so, because she used, she always used to say, because I get so aggravated over like unfair things and politics, you know, and she, what are you getting your blood pressure up? Why are you always getting your blood pressure? And she would always like if something happened at a store and she was treated unfairly, she would write a letter, but to the president of the store. You know what I mean? She was like a consumer advocate for herself. She should have been a consumer advocate. Um, but that was the one thing. Like she definitely called, she, you know, she would always come to every parent kid thing you know she always i never felt unloved even though you knew that this was her way of trying to love you right um but she went to therapy i went to therapy with her she was very open to that kind of stuff so she was she was open-minded and and wanted to she wanted yes 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 you know sometimes i think that's all you can ask for right from a from a parent right um, although there are some that I think are incapable of um, changing or seeing because right. it's just maybe a genetic thing. Or right, a, right. Or they're so damaged that it's just you can never right. uh, have a relationship with them. Talking about my mom. Um, what was your relationship with your – My father. Your father. like um, I was definitely my father's favorite. My father died – And how many kids? Two brothers and – I have one brother, brother and, and one sister. Yeah. And where are you? In I'm the, the youngest. Okay. So my father was born in 1916. Uh, so he was almost 48 when I was born. Wow. Um, and he, I was definitely his favorite. Um, I think he got a kick out of me, but he was a total workaholic and perfectionist and uh, but we did stuff together. Like we went on family vacations, but we had to, see, you know, everything was mapped out. We were seeing this at 942 and then at 1007, you know, um, he loved gardening. He loved, he was like a Renaissance guy. He loved the opera. He loved theater. And um, he, we used to go to Rickles a lot. Rickles helps you do, you know, remember that it was like a Home Depot kind of place. It but must he, be an East Coast thing yeah. because we didn't have him in the Midwest. So he, I think, I don't know. He was, he would polish the silver. Like there were certain things he did, but he wasn't home a lot. And I think a lot of it was because my mother was always so anxious and screaming. And he was, uh, he was a depression baby and he remembered people committing suicide during the depression and jumping off buildings. And so he was very always worried about money. And then when he died, there were like 80 bank accounts. Like he had so much bank money all over the place. Um, but he died. He had a massive heart attack when I was four. Or, and what? He didn't die when I was four, but he had a massive heart attack. Oh, okay. All right. And then. He then took care of himself. He died when I was 27, but of a massive heart attack. And my, that was another thing. My mother said anytime he'd reach for a pen in his shirt pocket or in his suit and his hand would go over his heart, she would freak out that he was going to. Yours is one of the most anxious households I've oh, ever heard described. It's 
so anxious, like, and, and dealing, you know, and my father was anxious and, you, you know, I could tell by the way he, we could tell by the way he closed the garage door if he was in a good mood or a bad mood, but he would come home. He always looked at the bills. He bills, bills, bills. He'd get mad at the bills, go to the bathroom, wash his hands. And then we'd always eat dinner at six o'clock and no one ever really, we didn't have these substantive conversations really. And I'd be like, what? And I, I remember always being like, what is wrong with everyone here? Like I, I just told the story on my podcast that, um, and by the way, uh, the name of your podcast is, is just Kill Me Ki- Now. Kill Me Now. And with Judy Gold. But I remember. I rem- and Lauren Hennessy, who was a yes, guest Lauren on Lauren Hennessy, yes. Uh, so I remember. Uh, no, I fucking forgot what I was going to say. Shit. I remember. Um, uh, wait. What did I just say before? This is in my act, how I can't remember anything. You're talking about your dad. And the anxiety and then anxious household. Oh, it was so bad. It's it's so bad that like I see it in my sister, you know, who's scared of her own shot. I think I went the complete opposite way of like what is going on? You know, and that's how I became a comic. I was like, What's going on? Why is everyone Oh, this is oh, what po- I want to tell podcast. you. I remember that my sister and brother never really talked to me at all. They that you know, my brother's bed was by the door, and if I ever knocked on it, he would slide up down the bed so his legs were hitting the door, so I couldn't open the door. I mean, it was just, you know. Uh, but my grandmother was sweet, so she used to come on the weekends. And uh, but I remember when I jo- when I was in high school, and I joined the marching band. There were these two. F- there was a brother sister, and they were best friends. And he was one year older than her, and we'd go on band trips, and they always sit with each other. And I, and I never knew that siblings talked to each other. Like, I had no idea that you could be a friend of your sibling. And that's why I was addicted to all these sitcoms growing up, because I was like, oh, that's the way. Well, Bobby and Cindy and Greg and Peter, they all talk to each other. Like, so that was an eye opening thing where people were actually talk to one another if if you could uh get in a time machine and go back mm-hmm. and talk to yourself at any age uh my therapist ages, what what age would you pick and what would you say to yourself you know my therapist has tried me has asked me this and i'm like i don't want to go back i don't want to even think about it but now that i've been through depression and and i do meditation um What age? Or ages? You know, I think I would... You know, part of me thinks junior high school, like seventh-ish grade, um, to say, you know, it's going to be okay, you're not you know, you're good enough, you know, you're, you're, I wish someone had told me I had ADD. That would have been really helpful. Um, but that these popular kids, this is the highlight of their life. And that 
it's good. Their lives are going to be over when this period of time, when this short, finite, tiny period of time is over. This is the highlight. This is the I was I was a cheerleader and I was on the football team, you know, and and you're okay. You're you're okay. You're good. You're good. You're you're as smart. You know, like I always felt like, uh oh, I'm not as smart as my brother and sister because they always tested well and I always didn't test well, but I always got good grades. But um, that. I kind of wish I had fought back because my, my mother told me to ignore them. I never said anything. And I, some, I wish I could go back maybe and say, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you. And you think you're so fucking cool. And you're not. You're an asshole. And what is your fucking problem that you have to focus your life picking on me? What, how, how does that help you? Torturing another person, you fucking asshole. So that's part, and I would also, I feel bad um, that I didn't embrace leaving. You know, I always would come home. I think I felt so uh, responsible for my mother that I wish I could have said you know look she's going to be fine and it's not your responsibility to make her happy um but i was always i remember i was so homesick uh even when i went to camp even though it wasn't even the happiest household to be you know what i mean but i was so homesick i I totally i totally understand that and and it's it's just like a visceral feeling of this um and I, I wonder if it's because it's so uh, familiar to us, even though it's got all these things that it's fraught with. Right. There's still something comforting in that we know our role, but the world outside right, of it right. is so, at least we know what we're going to get under right, our roof. Right. Like when someone's really nice to me, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Nuh-uh. You're not that nice. There, I also grew up with this notion. My parents were always like, uh, you don't emote. People who cry sort of are weak. And people who like cry at funerals or are demonstrative in any sort of way, positive and negative, uh, it's, it's phony. Everything like that is phony. I was never hugged. I think the only physical affection I got was I got whipped with the belt and I got beat up by my, you know, brother and sister. But no one ever hugged. I mean, I'm so huggy with my kids. I always tell them I'm proud of you. You know, I it like the hug you gave me in the lobby was like this person loves to hug. I'm a hugger too. Yeah, I just love. But I never, hug. I never hugged anyone. And when someone gives me a fake hug. I'm like, pat well, you on the back. yeah, where it's like not you're not close. And then it's a little pat I'm like there's something wrong with you. But especially when I know like I knew I've always wanted to hang with you. And I knew that you share this head game with me. Yeah. So it's like I want to make a connection. But yeah, I never. I mean, you you got 
a buffet of shitty, shitty things that fuck kids yeah. up. You know, I've, I don't know if I've heard that many dumped on, on one person, uh, at least in, in the, in the ones of repetitive, right? repetitive ones, you know, you hear kids where, you know, it was a single event and super traumatic. Oh, no. and, uh, I you, remember you, I went, yours are just, uh, a thousand cuts every day. And I just didn't understand it. It was like, what am I doing wrong? I went to sleepaway camp. I only went for four weeks. That was the half the time because I was going to be homesick. And I went back. I remember I I left the bunk. I don't know. I had to go back to the bunk to get something. And someone had inscribed in the wood by my bunk, Bigfoot slept here. And I was just like, do I have, should that be my last memory of Sleepboy Camp? You know, it's like, it was just always this waiting for something horrible. Like, and this whole notion of don't be happy, because if you're happy, it's going to be a worse, the thing is going to get worse, you know? And it's been years, and I started going to therapy at 18, because I was like, I realized I was gay, and... This is a, another story I recently told, but I went to this therapist and I didn't tell her. I, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just anxious. And, and then finally I'm like, I'm just going to tell her. I'm going to tell her I, I was with a girl. Um, and I go in and I said, um, all right, I have something to tell you. She goes, oh, I have something to tell you too. And she said, you first. And I said, um, I might be gay. I was with a girl, blah, 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 you know. And she said, and I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and it was like an out of body experience that I was finally saying it. I'm like, fuck. Typical. When did you first have feelings for uh, girls? Oh, beginning of my life. So you've got that thrown in on top of all this. Right. So I always knew, I was like, wait, I'm different. Like, you don't know what, what it is until you're actually going through adolescence. And you become a sexual person. You're like, oh, but all my life. And I remember I had um, a girlfriend, but it was secret. Everything was secret in, in high school. And then I went to college and she broke up with me and I couldn't tell anyone. And I ended up with a bleeding peptic ulcer and I was in the hospital, but I was really skinny. I had like a 28 <laughs> waist. <laughs> I looked really good. Um but I ended up in the hospital with a bleeding peptic ulcer. And I couldn't, everyone, I had signed up for a trip on uh, spring break to go to Orlando. And so I couldn't go. And I think it was a blessing in disguise because I probably, you know, I was so uncomfortable because I felt like I had to be with, I did have a boyfriend for a little while and I felt like I was being raped when I had sex. It felt like so unnatural. Um, but yeah, I had this whole secret to top it off. How did you two come together? This was in high school? Yeah, we were in the band. I've never talked about this ever in my life. We were in the band and, 
we become really good friends. And then just one night we kissed. And then it was like, oh, you want to go to the bedroom and uh, play Ouija board? Quote, unquote. Um, And yeah, and I was, you know, I'd become so attached because someone was being kind and gentle. And seeing you. Right. And not only not rejecting you, but like right that you turn me on right 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 what I, i'm always curious with ki- kids that grow up in in uh environments that are hostile towards um gays and lesbians they we they trans. weren't they weren't hostile oh, they weren't we never talked to no no they were okay they were very well educated you know wasn't it just was the time where you didn't say anything because it was horrible right but and, no one and, ever said but i think that's that's a yeah. hostility in itself because it's it's a it's a rejection uh, oh of it. absolutely it's, so i'm always curious how how do you take that frightening jump what do you remember what it was that made it feel like how do you lead up to that kiss who who it was just it was like the next it was just natural because there was just so much affection right it was just like if you were with a girl and you were like best friends and you're hanging out and there's just but and the thing was but i'm i'm i was never terrified that a girl would go oh my god he tried to kiss me right he's a fucking freak i don't it was it was no okay it was so weird that's that's the the, yeah it was but i had I had a neighbor who, um, I remember once I'm over there, uh, and he got an erection. He's like, oh, this is the big American bulge. And I was like, ew, you know, like I was mm-hmm. so young. And then this other guy moved in across the street, uh, rented this house across the street, which was unusual because everyone owned their homes. I was in like a community. And um, he was from Argentina and he was really tall and he was handsome. And I was like, oh, and then any kind of physical thing uh, was so gross. Like, I was like, this is wrong. It's wrong. Why don't I feel the right way? And then I remember my neighbor, the one with the big American bulge, his father, I worked for his father one summer. Um, and I was, uh, I would, he had a factory. I would stamp the serial number on the piece of metal. And my finger got caught under that. You know, it would happen. Mm. And, and uh, you know, it would turn purple. And I was like, oh. And he's like, uh, he said something like, ugh, you know, this, maybe you're not cut out for this. Maybe you should, you know, work in a hotel like in, like mm-hmm. women should or something like that. And he always said, like, inappropriate things. And I remember also being driven home from a Sweet 16 by a friend's by the friend's parents friend and i remember him sort of being inappropriate and i just got out of the car but those are the only kinds of like i was never sexually abused or anything mm-hmm. but the i remember the inappropriateness and also that uncomfortable feeling and that weird feeling it just wasn't it wasn't natural like i felt wrong do you know what i mean and for some reason that first kiss just it was no it was like an an extension and you know people who also feel 
feel that way too. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the, this is the case with you at all. Um, people who experienced uh, sexual trauma in their lives can uh, experience that when they're when they're having sex, where just every part of their uh, body and their mind is saying, "I don't want to do this. I don't want to do right. this." But they think, "But I'm in love with this person, so I want to please them." They have needs, right? And it and it can be really, really traumatic for that for that person to not listen to that voice, which um, needs time to to heal, to, right? To to process that, and then you know maybe maybe try doing that. But it just reminded me when you when you said that it's unrelated to to what you but shared. It, no, but, it is kind of related. I mean, but it's also like for some reason at that time period. Gay people like me, it was like you, you wanted to be straight so much that you had to prove to yourself. It's not like straight people are like, I should sleep with someone of the same sex to prove I'm straight. Right. But gay people at that time, well, I I got to at least try it. or I, Maybe it's just maybe, not the right person. Right, maybe right, it's right. not the right experience. Right, maybe right. we rushed into right. it. I, yeah, I would imagine that's... It was so like I, you had to prove it to yourself. And then, yeah, and it was just like, but I developed this for some reason instead of becoming a total mental patient, which, I mean, I was, but I had these coping mechanisms that I did that I used... I was like, fuck you. I became this like, why can't I be who I, I'm a nice person, you know? I am, I deserve, but it, it's, it really took a long time. And then I become a comedian, which is, and it's the most, you know, you, you're getting love. And it was like, I would get on stage, I remember in the beginning, and I'd be like, I'd do jokes about, how tall I was in the beginning mm -hmm. just for them to shut up. Like I just wanted them to say, I know what I look like. I know I'm tall. We're going to get that out of the way, you know, and then I could do my act. Yeah, I heard a, a comic one say one time say, um, comedians, uh, we become stand up comedians. So we control how people laugh at us. Right. That is 100%. I didn't want to be laughed at. I wanted to, control that's exactly right i've said that forever that you're now i'm gonna now i'm gonna tell you what to laugh you at. were the first person i ever heard that said i'm a piece of shit the world revolves around right. do you remember i think you did that in your act or no, some version judy of toll said that oh judy toll did yes and i was like best friends with her but yeah she said i'm a piece of shit that the world revolves oh, around sworn that was you that said that yeah um so what are what what's the next big uh step in your life like emotionally um how you view yourself how you view the world or or today what are you what are you struggling with um i struggle you, you know what uh, first you mentioned that uh you do cbt what what have you learned and what are some things oh, that help I you did with cbt CB and did it help you during yes during my depression you know, I've had so much, and now I finally have this one therapist who uh, uh, is specializes in self-defeating behavior. Because I've always been like, I work so hard. What And radical acceptance. That's the mm -hmm. other thing. The radical acceptance that I don't um, 
I'm like, but I did everything. Like, why? You know, that whole victim thing, which I hate being a victim. But CBT helped me so much because it's logical. And it's like, why, you know, I'm having these, and meditation too. I'm having, and my meds, I'm having these, um, these feelings and it's like, why do I, why, why am I afraid? And why do I think they're good? There's a whole lot of, I think, with people with anxiety that you're going to be found out, you know, that they're going to find out that you're not really talented, that you're, you know. That you're afraid. Right. And that, you know, you're a mush. I'm not afraid to say I'm a mushbag now, but I, before, you know, showing any emotion, but I mean, again, in my family, if you showed emotion, you were uh, phony. So I think that I would ask for tools, you know, and I I did the work. It's about doing the work, you know, and I think what it did was it made me realize that I do have control, like because you think they have these thoughts have control of you. But when you see that you do something and you're like, even if it's for like, 30 seconds, you have some sort of, oh, I didn't feel like shit for 30 seconds. That's what helped me continue with the CBT. And is a lot of it just saying, oh, this is just a feeling. Right. This isn't reality. All the time. I'm just going to b- breathe through it right. and it's going to pass. This is my, this is, oh, here we go again. It's like, okay, this been is, there, done that, sort of. I think that's one of the one of the benefits of um having to recover from alcoholism or drug addiction is that you have to learn these tools of acceptance uh, to stay sober, but then you get to use them when somebody cuts you off right. on the freeway. Right. You go, I want to change how that person drives. That's right. crazy. Right, right. That's crazy. But I used to do that. I used. They need to know right. that I know they're an asshole. Right. But I get don't. like that. I get like, you're not allowed to do that. Right. You're not allowed. And who the fuck do you think you are entitled to do something like that like i would never think of that and i get and i get mad over the stupidest thing like you've heard uh, you've heard the phrase uh resentment is uh taking uh taking the poison and expecting the other person to die right it's true but no but i i I, you know like there are certain things that just it's it's the you know what really pisses me off the most, I think, is that sense of entitlement. Yeah. That you can be mediocre and you could be a dick to people and still think, I deserve I, I You know what? I, I see it as more than anything. And yes, there's certainly a right. lot of entitlement. But what helps calm me down is I just go, they're unconscious. They're, they're right. just, their consciousness hasn't been and raised And there's yet. the part of me that wants to like fucking shake them and go, you yeah. motherfucker. But... Yeah, and then you have to. It, you know what? It's the CBT. Like it, it teaches you to accept yourself. Because I remember when I was in deep into my depression, and it took it almost three years for me to. And how long ago was this? Two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. It took until probably two thousand, where I could wake up without, you know, being in a panic and crying. You know. Um, I thought, oh, I'm never going to wake up again like a normal person. But did anything bring it about? I I think it was a perfect storm. Like I had, it happened in 2010. In 2004, I'd gotten 
we weren't legally married because we were gay, but I'd gotten divorced. Uh, I had just put my mother in a nursing home and I had to do it by myself because she had fractured her pelvis and she was in the hospital and my brother lives in Arizona and, and my sister and they had, she was going to rehab and they had a bed open. And I remember, um, I knew that she had to go to this rehab and I remember bringing her, they were bringing an ambulance. I so I drove to her apartment and I packed up a bag, and I knew she was never going to walk in there again. And I packed up a bag and I, I mean, I think I unconsciously knew. And I, she was there, and uh, I had I was unpacking her clothes, and I was like, oh, so I'll put this stuff here. And she's like, well, how long am I going to be here? You know, you know, and I was alone. I mean, I did this all. I went to her house, got the clothes. Then I'm like looking at her and I'm it was so I think it was that Um, I had been on the road and um, I had an assistant who was doing all my bills and uh, she paid a lot of my taxes on credit card, you know, and they're like, get a in advance on your credit card. And I was $78,000 in debt. And I'm someone who like always puts a little away. I always pay my bills on time. And I found out I was, and I was like, Oh my God, I've worked so hard. And I had, now I'm in debt. I had to change my whole lifestyle because I was a single parent. I mean, not in the sense of it was just me because Mm -hmm. my ex is, you know, she's their mother too. But I, was living like before but I wasn't even bringing the money in and then I have this debt and my mother's in a nursing home and I had just written a show about my career it was called the Judy show my life as a sitcom and it sort of went through every thing and my dream of having a sitcom and I at three different times in the show I pitch it to this voice Mm -hmm. of God and I get rejected I think just going through everything in my life in that show, plus putting my mother in a nursing home, plus... Um, divorce and the bankruptcy. The divorce. I didn't go bank. I paid it all off. Okay. I was, like, really good. And I also think I did a pilot for a talk show, and everyone was like, it's going to go, it's going to go, it's going to go. And I never believe anything, but I really thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be okay, and it didn't go. And it was just boom. And that's, I think... But if you look at my chart at the doctor's office my physically uh, i was i had no i uh, vitamin d i had no vi- you know i was deficient and uh, physically and emotionally mm. once i was okay at night a little bit i tried to go on stage and i couldn't write any jokes but i would try to do my act and I started talking about, you know, my depression. I'm like, you know, my because my mother would always call, are you better? Are you better? Are you better? Are you better? So, you know, I talked a little bit about that, but it was hell. I Mental illness should not be something we don't talk about. You know, it's like it's amazing because you, you can have mental illness um, 
which you don't ask for. No one, you didn't do anything to have the mental illness. And yet some fucking asshole who's smoking cigarettes his whole life who gets cancer or whatever or emphysema. Oh, I feel sorry for you. Feel sorry for him. And that's something you can discuss. But that person helped that happen. And yet here we are. And it's 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 like people call it. You know, I, to me, the two biggest hurdles are other people or you will call yourself uh, weak. Right. Um, and it's one of the few diseases that tells you you don't have a disease. Right. It's ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous. I take pictures of my pills all the time and I post them, especially after Robin Williams killed himself. I was like, but it's like. And there's so many people who have mental illness who don't even they won't deal with it. And they're the ones who are the are the ones that are like, oh, I don't need to go to a therapy. Those are the ones. Those are the people who need it the most. They do. They do. What are some of the things about being a um, parent to a kid being in a same sex marriage or union or whatever it was that the average person doesn't realize you deal with um both difficult and painful and also unique and beautiful to that situation i think that people children of same-sex parents i have two sons people don't realize that as much as i have to i mean pretty much everyone knows i'm gay i always you know i don't care it's not you know but that my when you're gay, uh, and you know, a lot of times I'm with my partner, Elisa, and they're like, Are you sisters? First of all, she's 5'5. Five five. <laughs> you know, we're not fucking sisters, okay? Um, I mean, we do have a little of that lesbianic, you know, same sort of haircut ish thing, but whatever. Um, but I think people don't realize that for these children, they have two parents who love them, which is more than most kids have. That a gay couple with a child went out of their fucking way to have that kid. There was never a mistake. It's a well thought out process. But I think people don't realize that children of gays have to come out of the closet probably more than a gay person himself because they constantly have to um they have to describe their family so with henry who's going to be 20 it was always um uh you know i had i had to call to have the forms changed on you know because it said mother and father Mm. um so now it says parent, guardian, parent, guardian. But up until I wrote an article for the Huffington Post a couple of years ago when Ben got his tonsils out, that that they have to hear the same shit. You know, we'll be in a cab. Oh, Ben's so tall. What's his, how tall is his father? He doesn't have a father. He has two moms. You know, and I do it in a kind, uh, but yet this is the way it is. There's no nothing behind it. But we were getting his tonsils out, and uh, he's on my ex's insurance. And they, the person at the doctor's office said, 
well, who's the real mother the in real front of him? Mother. And I said, well, first of all, and I say this all the time in front of the kids, uh, we're both his real mothers. If you're asking who the biological mother is, that would be me. And I advise you never, ever to ask that question again, especially in front of a child. And so they, you know, people assume that kids have a mother and a father and they, they have to say it all the time. You know, my son's at IU. I'm like, no one cares. You know, they don't care. Uh, but they're very, and they're not gay, but they're very sensitive to, they're both very into sports. Well, Henry's more pot handy, but Ben is very into sports and, you know, hearing the word faggot and gay, you know, they have a visceral reaction to that. But also, you know, I've, I've asked them, does it bother you? You know, cause we'll be, I, he plays AAU basketball and sometimes the kids are in the back talking about, and I say, are you upset? They're talking about their fathers. And he's like, nah. I mean, sometimes it bothers me a little, but not really, but that they have to explain that they live yeah. in a world where they have to explain their families. And, and when you talk to a young child of like, especially Henry's born in 96, there was no gay marriage or anything. They don't know why can't they have no conception of why you couldn't we can't get married or why our family is treated differently. You know, and you look at these. It's so aggravating because you look at these gay couples who take drug addicted. They just want to be parents, you know, or gays who are are parents of foster kids and they want to adopt them and can't. I mean. It's disgusting. Yeah. So I think that people don't realize that people who are kids who are children of gays love their family. They're fulfilled. They don't feel like they're missing anything ever. I don't know one kid uh, who feels like, you know, I missed out. I mean, I took my kids to the uh, projects to play basketball, taught them how to ride bikes and swim, you know. They don't feel it's your issue, but they do have to come out of the closet as much as I we bet do. that gets tiring for them. But that's yeah. that's that's society. Yeah, <laughs> society's thing. Yeah. Is there anything else you you want to share or talk about? I don't know. I mean, I could talk to you for another two hours. I don't know if my bladder can can handle that. I I have it. a bladder infection, everyone. Do you really? Yes, I just I don't know how. I think it's from all this traveling. So yeah, I just got the meds today. Uh, oh, meds for your bladder. I yeah. You meant oh no, meds. I have. Oh, here's something that happened to me that you might enjoy. I was coming out here to do a show, and then they didn't tell me that I would be here this long. They told me I'd be here gone, you know, five days ago. I've never not brought enough meds, ever. I've always like, what if I get stranded? For this time, I brought just a little, a little more. I had to like call the doctor, beg for my trazodone, <sighs> beg for my Wellbutrin. Like I was running out. And, yeah. So. Uh, and the name of the uh, thing that you just shot. Is- oh, so I just shot uh, I'm Dying Up Here. 
which is going to be on Showtime in the spring about stand-up in the 70s. And I just finished Shakespeare in the Park. I was in Shakespeare in the Park oh in God. New York. That was the most one of the most exciting things in my career. Wow. I can't wait to see... Uh, I'm the, dying up here? I'm dying up here. I'm on that, episode three. Uh, it is one of the uh, most important eras in stand-up. Oh, a lot of people beyond. don't realize it was really the germ of right. what you see as modern modern comedy yeah uh even though stand-up comedy had existed before right. then it was really kind of when the commercial legs of it right uh, grew um oh i also you asked the thing about the gay and and the family yeah. thing uh, you know i always say to this you know for all those people who believe that marriage this and mar- that when gay marriage passed where did everyone go to get married they went to City Hall. They didn't go to churches. They didn't go to synagogues. They didn't go to mosques. They went to City Hall to get a marriage license because it's about humanity and dignity and having the same rights as it's not about God. It's a legal thing. And so if you're going to argue God, 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 sorry, I'm not going to you know, participate. I think that's a that's a good place for us to, mm-hmm. to wrap up. Um, I'm so glad we finally got oh to my sit God, down. Oh my God! Thank and, you for having me on. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter at J E W D Y G O L D Judy Gold, like Judy Gold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, website JudyGold.com. Regular J U D Y G O L D dot com and um, what and else? the podcast and Kill Me Now. Kill Me, Kill now. me now. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, Jim. Oh, my God. Thank you. Love talking to her. I wish I would have got a chance to uh, to meet her mom, although the picture that she paints of her mom is so vivid, I feel like, I've, uh, I, feel like I did uh, meet her mom. Before we get to some uh, surveys, I want to give some love to uh, one of our sponsors, Young Health. I told you guys in the, in the opening about Probimune, which is a liquid probiotic product. Uh, that uh, it promotes intestinal health and it canes. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Paul. Hang it up. Just fucking hang it up. You know what? I'm going to blame the people at Young Health for me not being able to talk. Anyways, Probimune contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. It's uh, It's the leading fermentation process that ensures the largest number of good bacteria are delivered alive in the gut. I can tell you, I went for years with gut problems and not paying any attention to them. And as it got worse and worse and worse, I got more and more tired. I would get, uh, my digestion would be fucked up by the smallest things. I'd have like, you know, a a piece of cake or, um, uh, you know, and, and I didn't have celiac or any other thing. It was just, I had no good bacteria in my gut. And your gut is actually very closely related to your mood. So it's a super, super important thing. Um, but anyway, a probimune is easy to use. It's easy to travel with. It doesn't require refrigeration, which is huge because I used to be on the road all the time. Um, and it's great for the whole family. So right now, uh, you guys can get an exclusive offer of 50% off your first order of probimune, uh, a 30-day supply that's normally thirty four ninety five. It's just seventeen forty-eight plus shipping and handling. And all you have to do 
is go to probimmune.com, that's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout to get 50% off your first order of probimmune. That's probimmune.com, P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use uh, the promo code MENTAL, again, to get 50% off today. I want to also give some love to a new sponsor of ours, MeUndies. Uh, MeUndies is made from Modal. It's a fabric that is three times softer than cotton. Uh, MeUndies has tons of colors and patterns from classic to bold to adventurous and the only brand that has matching pairs for men and women. Uh, I gotta say, a nice pair of drawers, there is nothing like it. It is... Um, there, you know, there's two things that that I love. It, a good pair of drawers that fit well, and for guys, I think especially, it's important that uh, how do I, how do I put it delicately? Um, the cowboys have enough land to roam. Is it, yeah, yeah, that's awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter that my cowboy rides a very small horse. Um, <laughs> Underwear is important, and uh, MeUndies has created the world's most comfortable underwear with a blend of fabric that is three times softer than cotton. And again, I told you it's uh, it's called Modal. Anyway, uh, all orders uh, in the U.S. and Canada ship for free. If you don't love your first pair, MeUndies will pay you back, and you can keep it for free. No questions asked. I actually would request a picture of you in your underwear, but legally, I don't think uh, MeUndies and I are able to do that. Uh, anyway, for a limited time, MeUndies is offering you 20% off your first order at MeUndies.com slash mental. That's M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash mental. And if you don't love your first pair, again, it's free. You don't even have to send me a picture of you in your drawers. You have no excuse to try this awesome brand of underwear. So make sure you go to meundies.com slash metal, 20% off your first order, and use my link so that you know that we sent you. Uh, let's see. Anything else to tell you about? You know, and I could tell you that there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast, but uh, I don't feel like it. I've had a long day. I've been going through some shit lately. Uh, I don't really want to get into it, but... Uh, little overwhelmed. Um, let's see. Let's read some surveys. This is, and we don't, I, I didn't feel like reading any uh, Shame and Secrets surveys uh, today. I know with, normally they're a big part of uh, the deal. This is an awful moment filled out by, uh, <laughs> by Mommy Issues Equals Savings. And he writes, since listening to your episode with Phil Hendry, I've realized that what my mom did to me was sexual abuse. No one I've told seems wildly surprised, especially since I have a lifelong predisposition towards being with much older women. I've been going to therapy and doing my work so intensely that I passed out in a restaurant from an anxiety attack and developed shingles a week later. But on the bright side, during this time, they sent me an AARP card at 35 for being married to a member. It's as if the universe saw me suffering all this time before finally figuring out what the problem's been and in its divine mercy decided I should get 15% off at Denny's from now on for my troubles. As a side note, 
I want to thank you for that episode. It made my life very chaotic and anxiety-ridden for the time being, but it's a healing pain that I wouldn't have had without the podcast. Um, thank you so much. That makes me so so good, uh, feel so good to, uh, to know that. And as I always say to anybody who experienced um, sexual violation, no matter how minor or how... Uh, how covert or overt, um, shoot me an email because, uh, we're, um, we're a group. We're a group. And I always like to hear other people's, uh, other people's stories. This is a, a, um, post from the forum. Uh, it was posted by Jimmy and this was in reference to the episode that we had with, uh, Sarah Halfrecht. And He writes, I've had uh, borderline personality disorder for 30 years, and I'm still amazed at the complex complex nature of this illness. While Sarah's mother had BPD, the manifestation of the illness is so much different in her than it is in me that it almost seems like another illness entirely. So much of my BPD is about depression and not about the manic controlling behavior that Sarah's mother exhibited. Uh, at one point, Paul talked about depression and BPD being quite different, and yet my experience has been much more about depression than anything else. Um, and uh, he, he lists a, a, a couple of things, but I just thought this was an, a, a really important uh, email to read because um, it, A, I don't think a lot of us knew that, that that can be the case with BPD, but I think it's really important that... Um, when somebody's diagnosed with something that they don't get painted into a box as if we know everything uh, uh, about them. This is an awful moment filled out by Individual Medley, and she writes, um, As she's aged, my 70-year-old mother's depression and alcoholism have led to increased hospitalization. My mom and I are close. Over the years, I've learned to accept her condition as one I can't control. Because of that, I can support her through the tough times. She recently phoned me after her latest ordeal, nine days of radio silence in which I wasn't sure where she was. With more certainty, I knew how she was. Uh, in the call, she mentioned she had been receiving treatment at McLean, the well-regarded Harvard-affiliated psychiatric hospital. Upon hearing this news, I got a little excited. I said, oh, mom, you're at McLean. That's where all my heroes went. The poets, I mean. I'd studied literature in college. Some of the greats, Anne Sexton, Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, had also lived in the Boston area and done their time at McLean. Mom said she'd learned that these past couple of weeks, and she also rattled off the name of some musicians who'd stayed at the institution. Her voice was tinged with pride. It was awfulsome. I'd be amazed how many amazing artists um, dealt with mental illness or deal with mental illness. Uh, this is from Read It and Weep for Me, and she writes about her love addiction. I love the way you don't mind me. That is so fantastic. Um, oh, this one is so true, but uh, heartbreaking about uh, being a sex crime victim, being in a car accident, but only feeling all the pain and trauma days after. Thank you for that. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a Little Miss Nutcase, and she writes, I grew up in 
an organic whole food vegan household and I was homeschooled along with two siblings. I'm the middle child and the scapegoat for most of my life. When I was a child, my mother liked to take us out to KFC. We'd go either before or after lunches to avoid running into our neighbors. One day, our next door neighbor revealed that she had breast cancer. My mother espoused the virtues of not eating meat that eating meat is the cause of cancer. The next day, she took us to KFC. We were seated in such a way that we could see into the kitchen of the restaurant. My mother encouraged us to look inside. She told us that they they cut the whole chicken in half from butthole to head. The feces contaminate the entire chicken meat, which causes, which means the chicken is now cancerous. Shortly after her, quote, educating us, The fried chicken arrived at our table. My older brother, my younger sister, and I refused to eat the chicken. Our mother lost her shit and ranted about how there are children in Africa starving and would love to trade places with us. My brother and I argued against her, exposing her inconsistency. She got so upset, so loud, that the employees took notice of her. They had shocked and disapproving faces. We did eat the chicken. Later that day, my brother said, You're right. She's fucked up and crazy. I felt validated in a big way from the KFC employees and my brother's comment. It's my favorite memory of my childhood and of my mother. I think that's a KFC ad right there. I don't think there's any question. Um, This is uh, from uh, Five More Minutes. And he writes about his depression. When you tell me I have depression too and I just get up out of bed... I'm skeptical that you really have what I have. Snapshot from his life, my young child just learned to walk and spent half a day bringing me toys and books in an effort to get me out of bed. Oh, that is heartbreaking. That has to be so much pressure when you're when you're a, a, a parent and you're battling that. Uh, this is an, a happy moment from the Montvale Coat Guy, and he writes... Um, I've always had some kind of second or part-time job in my life for as long as I can remember. It helps pay the bills and keeps my mind occupied. That all changed in 2010-2011 uh, when I lost my main source of income. Then two of the side gigs I was doing ended a month later. Suddenly I went from 60 to zero in an eerie amount of time. Depression turned into a breakdown, then a bipolar diagnosis, then getting on the right meds, but I was still looking for my elusive second job. Until one day in early 2012, my sister announced she had purchased a small beach house in Plum Island, Massachusetts, and she needed a guy to do some painting and general repairs. I'd be working with her husband, my brother-in-law, Tommy, one of the few people who never made me feel less than and uh, was a willing employer. Summer of 2012 began, and I started the slow road back to becoming who I once was. Tommy and I would take breaks together, eating lunch on benches made of planks and buckets, talking about specific things or nothing at all, just enjoying the rare time we had together. Near the end of August, we were wrapping up the project, painting the front porch. Leonard Skinner suddenly came on, uh, the battered battered sight radio we had blasting. A warm and salty breeze rolled off the nearby Atlantic Ocean as the two of us worked in perfect unison. For that one moment, I felt alive and whole. A human, a human being, once again, who was put on this earth for a reason. I was no longer asking if I can do this. I was answering, yes, I can. Thank you for that.
And I have no idea what Montvale Coat Guy means. But uh, I think we've read one of your surveys before. Pavlov's Bitch writes about her OCD. My car radio volume must be in multiples of five, even if 30 is too too loud and 25 is too quiet. Uh, Snapshot from her life. Secretly wishing one of my nieces grows up to have a mental illness, then maybe my family will stop pretending they don't exist. You know, I get it. I get it. It is... You know, as if people don't have enough on their plate struggling with mental illness or trauma that, that they're, the, the, you know, quote unquote loved ones around them, uh, have to dismiss it. Um, this is, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself T and this is he has uh, he deals with uh, depression and uh, alcoholism and a snapshot from his life he writes every day people ask me how i am i have a choice in that moment lie and say something that's expected in small talk oh i'm good you oh mondays you know still upright or i can tell the truth that i hate myself that i feel like i'm at the bottom of a hole and can't even tell which way is up that i can't tell the difference between healthy outlets and coping mechanisms anymore that waking up had in fact become the easiest part of my day because I do it so quickly, I don't have time to ask myself why I care about anything. Days off, I lie in bed trying to dream up any possible reason to be human, and it takes hours to convince myself that maybe I'll enjoy seeing the people I live with. Maybe I'll find enjoyment in the things I do. Maybe I'll find a reason to believe that life is worth struggling through. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, maybe we should have a t-shirt that says, don't ask me how I am because I'll fucking tell you. (laughs) How you doing? I really, honestly, I am hating myself so much that I want a steamroller to flatten me, then have my worst enemies raise my pancaked body like a flag and hoist it in victory. That'll... That'll put an, an end to any any small talk or relationship. Um, actually, you know what? Most people will probably go, Jesus, you too? Lavender uh, shares a happy moment. And she writes, A bit before I left for college, I dyed my hair blue and turquoise from one of those cheap uh, box dyes. For some reason, my mom has always been has always seen me as an extension of herself. Because of this, she's always objectified me. She would grab my ass and stroke my hair and tell me how beautiful I was, how much I looked like her when she was younger. She wanted to pick out my clothes, my prom dress, and even my lingerie. Oh, that is creepy. She would always tell me how unkempt and disgusting my hair was. Uh, she told me that if I just straightened it, uh, if I just brushed it, if I just put some product in it, I wouldn't look like such a fat slob. While crying in the car after one particularly vicious criticism of my hair, the idea came to me, if she thought I was ugly, if she thought my hair was disgusting and bad, she had no right to tell me what to do with my body. Fuck, I was an adult, albeit only a couple of months. So I called my best friend up and we dyed my hair. I loved it. My hair was the color of, uh, was the color and smoothness of sea glass. I loved the stares I got, the smiles, and the little girl who squealed and called me a mermaid. When we went out for burgers, the waitress said I was gorgeous. 
I felt like my body was my own. Best of all, I wasn't a mirror anymore. When I got home, my mom said she hated it and that she regretted paying paying for me uh, for it to look nice if I was just going to ruin it like this. And yeah, those words still hurt, but after that, my mother stopped touching me like I belonged to her. I stopped feeling like she was controlling every choice I made. I made a clear statement. You don't own me. Oh, I love that. It is just beautiful. That is just beautiful. Thank you for that. Lavender writes about uh, her depression. Having chronic depression is grudgingly staring up at the ceiling and saying, Ugh, fine, I'll live. Just don't expect me to be happy about it. Um, about her uh, menstrual cramps, she writes, Telling me my intense menstrual cramps will go away after I have kids is like telling someone with a douchebag boss, It's okay. It'll be better when you retire. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by Scapegoat Rising, and they write, I grew up with a father who was a narcissist and a mother who did her best. She went to therapy and made some positive changes for her and us, much to my father's dismay. Fast forward to two and a half years ago, my mother died after a three-year battle with breast cancer. We were all supposed to help organize the funeral by picking out photos and music for a slideshow. In the end, my father took over and we had little input. Her funeral was held in an old church. The slideshow and soundtrack was set to repeat. Much to everyone's surprise, only photos of him and my mother were in the slideshow. Photos before they got married, their wedding day, their honeymoon, and vacations later in life without the kids. It was weird. For a solid hour, this went on with only one song playing on repeat in the background, I'm Your Lady by Celine Dion. My sister and I were able to find humor in this, though neither of us could stomach the sound of Celine Dion's voice after that. No offense to her. Like most people who were traumatized as kids, our conversations sometimes included the worst-case scenarios, like, if I die, don't play Celine Dion at my funeral. We planned to write a book, a dark comedy about our family. We found it healing to laugh at the ridiculousness of my father's narcissism. Three months ago, my sister died. I was devastated. Because my sister didn't make other arrangements, my father took charge of the funeral preparations. I gave my input, but it was largely ignored. Her funeral was surreal, as was her death, which was unexpected. At her funeral, I stood in the entryway thinking about all of this, looking out the glass doors of the funeral home. It was sunny out, a warm June afternoon. I thought how weird that the sun still shines so brightly in, on some of our worst days. And then I heard her voice. Celine Dion, my heart will go on from the Titanic soundtrack. I couldn't help but smile. I knew that if my sister was there, she was rolling with laughter. I miss her so much. That That is just... I just, sometimes I don't even know what to say because it's just so awesome. It's just so awesome. Um, Limbo Diddley writes about his anxiety. My wife frequently asks me what I want, and I usually am convinced she doesn't really want the truth, but just wants me to want the same thing she wants. So I panic and blurt out, I don't care, which is never the right answer. 
rinse, repeat, and fantasize about suicide. Snapshot from her, uh, his life. I made a mistake and wasn't there for my wife at a critical time. And now she thinks the last 11 years were a lie and that my one mistake to put her first is the real me. I'm stuck in purgatory, hoping that she'll eventually forgive me and treat me like more than just a roommate, but fearing that she'll never forgive me and also never tell me it's over and allow me to move on. I fear I'll be walking on eggshells and starved for love and affection forever. Go to counseling. Tell her it, it is it that if she won't go to counseling with you, that it is a deal breaker and and you are moving on. Because you, it is insanity to resent somebody for not changing and not doing anything about it and still being around that person. You you put all of the responsibility on them, and and uh, and I'm not saying it's not shitty that you know you're in that situation with your wife, but you have to um, take advantage what of what little healthy power you have in that in that situation uh, let's see oh this one is dark uh nick writes he's got a um he has ptsd from military service and um he writes in the army i slept in a bed where someone once killed himself the bullet hole the bullet hole in the wall was never fixed and i was able to look through it into the garden God, that, that's like out of a Stanley Kubrick movie. Wow, that is heavy. Thank you for sharing that, Nick. This is um, a snapshot from Nika's life. Uh, Nika's gender fluid. And uh, their issue is anorexia. And they write, thinking about food and calories constantly at work and school, counting down until you can go home and weigh yourself letting the fluctuations of the scale determine how good or bad your day is, feeling defiant and haughty, yet totally out of control and hopeless. And then this snapshot from her life, probably the moment that comes to mind first is waking up at three in the morning and being unable to go back to sleep because I was so preoccupied with whether I had gained weight from eating 200 calories the day before. My wife knew I was suffering from anorexia and I was in therapy at the time for it, so I wasn't supposed to use the scale. Because of this, we had taken the lock off of the bathroom door in our master bedroom. I snuck into the bathroom and tried to weigh myself. The battery was dead in the scale, and I literally cried myself sick because I couldn't find out whether I had lost. I couldn't sleep or eat again until I replaced the battery later that day and realized I had lost weight again. You know, there there are... There, there's a... um blog that I posted on the website, a guest blog of um, a woman who wrote about having a, a shopping addiction. And you know, one of the hurdles that those of us with addiction and mental illness have to deal with is, A, there are people that don't believe that this is a thing that is just a, you know, a moral weakness on our part. But there are also people, and, and, and I include myself in this category because I um anyway uh, out of ignorance i feel like i'm not that person anymore now but there are also people there are people who view things as humorous um and 
while I think it's okay for two people who have been through the hell of a, or are in the hell of a mental illness to crack jokes with each other, when, you know, when people, like a true shopping addiction is not fucking funny. It is sad. It destroys people's lives. It's heartbreaking. And, and I guess that survey that I just read, um, just reminds me how there are just still so many sicknesses are turned into punchlines. And maybe I'm being a hypocrite because I make dark jokes, but I like to think that the audience, you guys know that I'm, I'm doing it from a place of, um, hold on, let me, let me go chase down that guy that stole my motorcycle. I don't know if you could hear that, but wow, I don't think I'm going to be able to catch him. Anyway, I just, um, that her survey, um, about that just made me, I don't know, just kind of made me kind of sad to, to think that there are still people who view eating disorders as a punchline or, um, anyway, we got a long way to go. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, Mennonite no more, uh, writes about his emotional neglect growing up in a large family where no real feelings were ever expressed. Even now, when we get together as a family, we only smile and say nice things about and to each other and pretend everything is great and lovely. I fucking hate it. I want to scream and swear at them, make them be angry, make them feel and allow myself to feel something, anything. Uh, about his experiencing religious abuse. Uh, the religion was Mennonite. I left about seven years ago. The rest of my family are all still deeply entrenched, so needless to say, we don't have much in common anymore. It's horrible that I never want to see or talk to... Oh, is it horrible that I never want to see or talk to my family again? They don't really mean much to me. It's like they are distant acquaintances that I avoid seeing as much as possible. No, I don't think it's... It's unfortunate... But um, you're not a bad person at all for that's what you feel. It's, I believe intimacy between two people has to be, it's something that's earned. And um, yeah, so don't go, go easy on yourself. Go easy on yourself. Um, I think a lot of people relate to that. To that feeling. And for most of us, later in his survey, he talks about uh, feeling dead inside. And for most of us who've stuffed our feelings for a lot of our lives, that's, that's what we feel. Uh, I've shared many times on this podcast that when my dad died, I didn't feel much and I felt like a terrible person for it. And I loved my dad. It's just my dad was, was just not available. He was just checked out in his head and there weren't really great moments that, uh, with my dad that I could look back on. I'm sure there was some, but it, it was, um, I know there were some, it's just so much of it was, um, just feeling that distance anyway, British bitch. 
describes her depression. It wasn't until I attempted suicide that people finally realized I wasn't just, quote, feeling blue. Wow, that's profound. Thank you for that. That is... And then I want to end it with this um, this beautiful email I got from Kitters. And she writes, I felt compelled to write this after I heard Converting My Closet into a Fallout Shelters survey from episode 291. I know their survey was from back in June, but the events that so deeply affected them also affect me in a similar way. I think uh, that that survey was in response to the uh, shootings in Orlando. Uh, She writes, I'm the mom of an amazing transgender teen son. He started his transition this past year at age 15. Although I don't know what it's like to feel the way he does, I have seen how his transition from female to male affects others. I've always taught both my children to be more accepting of others uh, starting at a very early age. I was in college when the horrible murder of Brandon Tina occurred and was shocked to find out he was only two years younger than me. Um, for those of you that don't know, Brandon Tina was a um, female-to-male transgender who was beaten, sexually assaulted, and murdered uh, shortly thereafter on uh, December twenty-first, uh, December thirty-first, nineteen ninety-three. That event left such a lasting impression as I saw how it affected the then uh, LGB community. Now, at age 46, I'm just as saddened about all the events surrounding people who are transgender, agender, or gender fluid and how they're treated in this country and the world. Uh, When my then daughter was in third grade, I sensed she would be different, but I couldn't quite figure out in what way. She wasn't a typical girly girl, but didn't seem like a tomboy either. My then husband and I suspected she might eventually be gay, but it didn't matter to us. We were just loving, nurturing parents to both our children and embraced the differences and similarities they shared. It wasn't until my then daughter was in the seventh grade that I knew she was struggling. Her grades started failing, she seemed uh, depressed, and I knew it was something more than just the problems of my marriage. I pulled her aside privately and told her no matter what she told me, her dad and I still loved her and would stand by her 100%. She brought her tiny hands up covered her eyes, and began sobbing uncontrollably. As I took her into my arms, she stammered, I think I'm gay. As a parent, it broke my heart to see her her hurting, but as a human being, I was saddened to know my child was hurting because of how many horror stories she had heard from her friends about how their parents reacted when they came out of the closet. It angered me, and still angers me, that there's a damn closet to begin with. I hugged her tight and told her we both loved her no matter what, and that I was serious when I told her we supported her 100%. By the middle of 8th grade, and coincidentally right after she went bra shopping, I noticed she was very uncomfortable and kept staring at her chest in her new bra. It was then something clicked for me. After a few questions, she admitted she didn't feel like a girl but was confused. I saw by the look on her face she wasn't confused but was apprehensive. I took a deep breath and I asked if she felt like she was both a boy and a girl or felt like a boy but was trapped in the wrong body. She said, the last one, as a tear slipped down her cheek, joining the others 
dotted onto the chest she didn't want. At that very moment, I saw flashes in my mind of bullying, possible murder, hate crime, sexual assault, crippling depression, anxiety, fear, suicide, violence, non-acceptance in a world that categorizes people in us and them, legislative nightmares, uh, and a lifetime of uphill battles with non-empathetic, closed-minded people possibly in store for my child in the future. All I could do was hug him in that moment and try to choke back my tears caused by the all-too-real notion that my soon-to-be son would likely experience at least 50% of those fears of mine before age 21. His transition began last fall with a name and pronoun change. This summer was hormones. I'm thankful he's at a high school where the kids accept him. The real problem is the other adults. It's like strange looks they give, the faint whispers from afar, and the blatant judgment by other parents that I'm causing irreparable harm to my child by allowing him to be on testosterone. My son struggles with anxiety and depression, but I was able to catch the suicide ideation in time. I would rather allow my child to transition after recommendations by his therapist and doctor than have a dead child. Suicide rates among transgender and the gender non-conforming uh, are a staggering 41% in this country versus 4.6% of the rest of the population. I see the desperation of trans youth to have positive parental support in YouTube comments, Twitter, Tumblr, and even Facebook posts. I want to be that loving, accepting, supportive mom to them all, but I know I can't physically be uh, in real life. So when I heard that survey, I wanted to earnestly let them know it's never too late to be the genuine you. If I met them in person, I'd give them a hug and tell them, I love you. Not because I feel sorry for you, but because I want you to know what unconditional acceptance and love feels like. And as a mom, I want to impart a tiny bit of wisdom. This is one of my favorite quotes. You are the one and only you there ever was or will be. What you choose to do with that life is entirely up to you. Paul, I know I'm not the only person out there that's shocked and appalled by how the LGBTQ community is being targeted legislatively and violently. I'm merely one voice of many who want so desperately to support and nurture those who feel they don't have anyone who accepts them. Well, I can say I do, and my son does too. Thank you so much for that. You guys are just amazing. Just amazing. Thank you um, for all the surveys you guys filled out. Um, it's... Um, no, I'm just... I'm going <laughs> to avoid doing that thing where I, I don't want to sign off. I just want to keep telling you how much I love and appreciate you. Uh, I'm like that friend that won't let the friend leave and just keeps bringing up other other things and they're like okay you know i got that thing uh anyway i i hope you got something out of uh this week's episode and just remember if you're out there and you're struggling and you're hurting just never forget that you're not alone and there there are people everywhere that care and will support you unconditionally the problem 
is finding them. But we're everywhere. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.